If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. Hi, this is Edward October for OctoberPodVHS.com, here to tell you what people are saying about our true crime podcast. A thread store in Arizona says, too much dribble and slang. These ladies obviously enjoy their own humor and sound high. Hey, at least they called you ladies. Benny from Idaho says, your topics are so appealing, but a three-person pod is difficult enough to follow without banter. Um, our true crime podcast only has... Two people? Wait, 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 wait. Where's the other 100 five-star reviews? Can somebody give me the five-star reviews? Okay, here we go. Much better. Luscious Lee says, stand up. Five stars. You girls are funny AF. I especially love the me and Mrs. Jones rendition you sneak into the recording. Cherry G 107 says, I struggle finding a new podcast, and so far, I've been hooked to you guys' podcast. Keep up the good work. Thumbs up, thumbs up. Smiley face. Our true crime podcast, two girls, one story, and lots of bad renditions of songs you love. Available on your favorite podcatcher. Go binge it today. Hey everyone, it's Dr. Shiloh. Welcome back. I'm here with Dr. Scott. Hey folks, we are back after a short break with tons of news. Yes. A lot of exciting stuff. So thank you for holding out on our hiatus for July. Yeah. Hope everyone's having a bitchin' summer. (laughs) (laughs) It is so hot right now. I know. We're recording in a studio with um, our sound guy, Justin, because we did an interview earlier today, but we are melting. And I told Scott, I'm like, I know we're always bitching about weather or whatever, and we're so lucky where we're at. We are, but also people forget that Los Angeles, Southern California, Los Angeles area of Southern California is so huge. There are There's a wide variety in climates, and right now we're over in a part uh, that is sort of in the Pasadena area, and the air is just still. Yeah. It's, it's just yeah. hot and still. It's hot and still, and um, so we're I'm feeling sweating it. We're and smelling it. It's good. <laughs> Do you guys smell it? <laughs> <laughs> no, so we. it's been two weeks now since the True Crime Podcast Festival in Chicago, which was wildly successful. Um, we had our live show. Well, I'm going to say live in air quotes, live for a live audience um, that we did with the Getting Off podcast. And the audio for that was not quite captured well. Um, so what we did is we actually have re-recorded that. 
with Jessa and Nick of Getting Off. And so we were are going to get that out to you because we did the Mary Kay Letourneau case. And so many of you have been asking us to do female sex offender topics that, of course, we're going to put that out. So, And it was a blast. It was so much fun. And we, I, I have to... I have to go back and say, I'm, I really am almost speechless, and that's saying a lot for me. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't really know about the history of, I mean, I knew this was going to be the first annual True Crime Podcast Festival, inspired by Podcasters Row at CrimeCon. So we've been in contact with what, I mean, with, with um, Lainey and Lisa. and Lisa for, what, eight, nine months sure. preparing sure. for this. Not really knowing what was going to happen, and they knocked it out of the park. It was great. I, th- I thought, and I don't even want to say like for a first effort because that sounds diminishing, and it, right. it, I don't mean to diminish it at all. It was fantastic. It was a great venue where we were in a contained um, area where you didn't need to leave. There were restaurants, great bars, part of the city, beautiful part of the city. You do want to leave the hotel though, because Chicago is beautiful and we got literally the best weather probably possible yes. in summer at all. Yes. But the presenters and the other podcasters were just amazing. You just felt like family. Yeah. Everybody was so friendly and cool. It was so neat. I thought it was so cool just to sit and talk with people. And I'm like, I listen to your voice when I'm in the car and here we are chatting and that's just an odd, surreal experience it is. in and of itself. It's really weird. Um, it, it, we were just as much fans being there and attending as we were being, you know, part of the event itself. But I thought I thought the topics for the panels were really great, you know, talking about inclusivity and ethics and um, got everyone just really seemed to enjoy themselves. I'm sure you if you didn't go, you saw it all over social media, what just a success it was. Yeah, so. I can only imagine that they're planning for it to be a bigger event next year uh-huh. because there were, I mean, it I had be. I had friends that were emailing me at the last minute trying to get tickets and I, I kept yeah. having to tell people like, I think it's sold out. I don't yeah. think you can get in. Right, right. Um, but then we also had this phenomenal opportunity to do the panel with Nick and Jess. I know you touched on that. I'm huge fans of, of the Getting Off podcast, If I, as I have said here before. This was our first chance to meet in person. It was, for one thing, what what I don't know if it's necessarily going to come across in our collaboration. We had just had a blast with them earlier today recording, but I wish that everybody could have been there in the audience when we were doing this. I've never felt so professionally respected as far as the way information was flowing um, between the four of us. I just thought it was a great opportunity to really present this somewhat lurid case. And really, I think we gave like a really profound three-dimensional perspective on some very complex issues, including gender roles and right. sexuality versus pedophilia and legal Man, we touched on double standards. Everything. We did. We touched everything. In fact, we were only supposed to be talking for 60 minutes and we went on for 90 and the audience yeah. didn't leave. I was right. like, oh my it gosh. Was a, it was a good vibe. It yeah. was a really good collaboration, but we made a lot of new friends and it was just a really good time. So we are absolutely planning on going back. Um, we've also registered already for CrimeCon in Orlando next year, which is early May. Um, even though I can't stand Orlando, I'll go. And yes, I'll go to Disneyland or Disney World with you, Scott. Yes, you will, whether you want uh, to or not. 
Um, but yeah, so a lot of exciting things, I think, coming up for us, for LA Not So Confidential. Right. And hopefully we're going to uh, get involved in some local stuff here in LA. And we just have tons of ideas for more shows coming down the line. But please, as always, let us know if you have some as well. And thank you for being so active on the Facebook page, folks. I mean, it's just, it's so much fun getting to interact with people in that that venue. Yeah. We love it. And if you're not a... If you're not a member yet, please come and join us. We're going to be having a watch party. Are uh, we? Cup, yeah. Or, we, remember, <laughs> what are we doing? We, we go, Chris Brewer, one of our listeners, um, pointed out something we're going to be doing in a couple of weeks. So it's going to be on a Friday night. We're going to host a watch party on Facebook. So you'll get to hear some of our <laughs> okay. smart. We can all. Let me know the details. Okay. I'll be there. <laughs> More details to come. Okay. So today we are going to talk about stalking behaviors. Um, this is very exciting. So Scott teased this I think in the last episode that we put out that we we're going to be talking about this soon and this was really fun to dive into because I really wanted to weave in the entertainment piece to this um, and so I got to watch a couple of my favorite movies from the 90s um, so we're definitely going to dish about that but this stalking has this mantra of being the crime of the 90s and we're going to talk historically why that is, right. um, but man, Hollywood jumped on that quick as oh, yeah. well. So this is a very uh, Los Angeles Hollywood episode, I think, that's a lot of fun, but we're going to talk about some really interesting, serious pieces to stalking. Um, so there was just, in the psychological community and criminology, um, very little research before the late 90s on stalking. Um the, the 90s is when really first world countries began their anti-stalking laws. And it's still something that's being fought for today in a lot of different avenues and, and more specific behaviors that we sort of umbrella under stalking that countries all over the world are still advocating for. So um, can you talk a little bit about laws and how that happened and where this came out of? Because some true crime stories really have have put that yeah. in the forefront. And I have to, once again, as per usual with my motor mouth, I have to be careful not to go down a rabbit hole with too much of this because the the phenomenon of stalking, there are so many layers to it and that then branch off into other layers of motivation and criminal versus non-criminal acts or what constitutes criminality. But basically, just to start, and we're going to circle. I know I always say this. I always say we're going to circle back to that, and I hope we do. do actually, we ever? So I don't know if we do. I apologize <laughs> if we don't. But I don't want to go too far into it now. But I do want to give two brief examples that we'll fill out later of definitive laws that came as a result of stalking cases. Um, unfortunately, and tragically. The reason that these two do exist as laws in the state of California is because of the victim's death. Well, and that happens a lot. Uh, right. A high profile It, it has to be something that brutal yeah. and, and terminal right. for it to exhibit that way. So one of the most important ones, um, and here's another recommendation for a documentary. There's a documentary out about Rebecca Schaefer, was a, an incredibly talented uh, young actress Back in the 90s. No, was it late 80s? Um, um, my Sister Sam? Yes. 
So, um, Rebecca Schaefer, she, let's see, um, she had some success as a teenage model and actress in New York in the mid eighties and then made, um, a very successful movement from New York, sort of East coast, uh, work to a West 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 coast work in a show called my sister, Sam with an actress, uh, named Pam Dauber from this was after Mork and Mindy had ended. It's the, the premise of the show is that, uh, it's two sisters, one substantially older than the other one. Their parents are deceased. So the younger sister comes and lives with her. It was an enormous, almost immediate hit. And one of the reasons it was such a hit was because of the, the dynamic between the two actresses. It was just really good. I mean, the Tam Dauber at this time was a very seasoned comedic actress and Rebecca Schaefer was just this sort of unbelievable talent, adorable, adorable in in all these different ways and, and very talented. And, um, her career, even though the show did not last very long, her career took off. Um, where she was doing movies and one of she's doing movies and television and a, a lot of different things. And one of the things that comes along with that is, is fans. And she got a fan that um, became obsessed with her uh, dangerously. So ending up in uh, brutally murdering, murdering her on her front doorstep. And as a result, and the way he found her address was that he was inspired by another stalking case where the perpetrator had used a private investigator to go into California Department of Motor Vehicle records in order to get someone's address. So he was as mentally ill as this perpetrator was. He was able to, he had the wherewithal and the funds to hire a private investigator, get Rebecca Schaefer's address, stalk her for months Mm -hmm. at the studio at her home address. There was some back and forth between Los Angeles and his home state. And he ultimately killed her on her doorstep. As a result from that legislation went through where you can no longer access that information through the department of motor vehicles. Can I do two really quick podcast recommendations? Yes. So, our friends at Criminal Perspective at, through Crawl Space Media, they just released an episode where they do an interview with Robert Bardo um, from prison. Whoa, so really? They, yeah, they, um, that's really interesting to just listen all these years later to sort of him talk about the offense and not talk about it. He does right. a lot of skirting around um, some questions they ask him. And then, of course, our friends at Hollywood Paranormal just released an episode all about the Rebecca Schaefer murder. That's a really good listen as well. And that's great. Of well, course, with their signature paranormal aftermath, touching on that. So, highly, highly recommend those two. Yeah, and one of the, you know whether uh, paranormal is your shtick or not, it certainly is mine. I love that stuff. But if it's not your cup of tea, I still highly recommend Hollywood Paranormal. Those two hosts, they do the most unbelievable research. They debunk so many things that become, you know, urban legends, urban legends that were never based in fact. And, you know, Tammy and and Bryce will be the first ones to go to call BS on that stuff. So I I highly recommend it. 
So that's the one positive thing that came from that particular example is that you know you can no longer access DMV records. Right. Um, another one happened that is incredibly tragic. Um, is what we call here on the West Coast in California, we call a Tarasoff law. Mm-hmm. So that is uh, stemming from a case, which is the case is Tarasoff versus the Regents of the University of California. Uh, this has been talked about a lot. It's very important in, in law school. I mean, this is an incredibly seminal case in law school across the country, and even though psychology and in psychology, right? It, it reflects on us big deal in a, in a big way. So, and this is as back as far back as the, um, late sixties. So the history behind it is um, in a nutshell is that a university of California student at Berkeley, um, uh, Tatiana Tarasoff, uh, came into casual acquaintance of, uh, a student from Bengal, India. His name was Prasenet Podar. Mr. Podar became somewhat obsessed with her. And there was, there are some reasons behind it that there were culturally, um, informed, but clearly this individual had a, a an obsession with, uh, Tatiana from the beginning and he, when he was re- when his advances were rejected after an initial stride to be polite to him, then she had to reject him because he was coming on too strong. Um, the guy really, really went off the deep end. He went to the counseling that was provided by the University of Berkeley, and he told the mental health clinician that he was thinking of killing her. He was so angry, and the therapist. It's not that he necessarily didn't necessarily take it seriously, but the framework as a clinician that I understand is that he, the the clinician was under the impression diagnostically that Mr. Padar was diagnosed with schizophrenia paranoid type, uh, both acute and severe. And what I think he was doing in his way, because I do want to give him like a little bit of leeway or wiggle room, is that he thought that 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 level of delusion and that level of anger was informed by the mental illness. The mental illness was doing the heavy lifting as opposed to the, the obsession. So he really did not consider it to be a legitimate threat towards Ms. Tarasov. And wanted to be concerned with his client's confidentiality. Exactly. Because conf- confidentiality is, is enormous in the, in the patient clinician relationship. Okay. Unfortunately, um, uh, Mr. Pidar, uh, murdered quite brutally, Miss um, Tarasov, which resulted in what we call a Tarasov law, which basically it boils down to this: that mental health clinicians have a duty to warn. So if if someone comes into my office and they say, uh, "I'm so mad at um, John Smith," you know, I'm going to kill him. Immediately, I have to take the position. I have to. I have to further investigate that. Right. And I have to first determine whether or not it's a legitimate threat. Does John Smith even exist? Perhaps sure. John Smith doesn't exist. Maybe John Smith doesn't exist, but if my client is so disabled that they delusionally think that every blonde-haired man walking down the street is John Smith, then I have to take that into consideration as well. That's not a Tarasoff, right? but that could be a Lanterman Petrus Act, which is a 5150 where I would hospitalize someone. Mm-hmm. In this case, what it did is it changed our view, uh, our 
perspective and our movement through these type of evaluations where we have a duty to warn and that duty to warn extends to the victim. Right. So it's not like I can just say, okay, well, I'm going to call the police. Hey, um, Joe Blow says that he's going to kill John Smith. Um, You guys need to take care of this. And then the police magically take care of it. No, it's a matter of I have to, as a clinician, I now have a responsibility to do what I can to identify, locate, contact, and inform John Smith immediately if I feel that there is an immediate threat to him that he is in danger and he needs to go to the police. So these are major laws. This changed the landscape of confidentiality Mm -hmm. in the therapeutic setting. Um, there's, you know, a little bit more fluidity with it than I would like sometimes. But then again, I think we do have to err on the side of, of, um, community safety and individual safety. Sure. As opposed to one person's confidentiality. Right. And there's been other legal movement as well, but those are the two big ones that I wanted to just offer before we and launch I, I in. And I think a, a really early misconception when the term stalking came up was that it was only public figures or celebrities that suffered from stalking. Right. And, you know, this this um, obsessed fan who's essentially a stranger to this celebrity becomes infatuated and obsessed and seeks them out and stalks them that was kind of the the ideal scenario that people would picture when they heard stalking. which is not even the majority no of the cases no it happens the most interesting sometimes the, yeah, exactly the most sort of salacious and interesting <laughs> yeah, ones but yeah. unfortunately the vast majority of stalking cases are family members right. or or Yes. "Quote unquote loved ones." I'll break that down of like relationship right. in a little right. bit. Um, so, as far as the definition of stalking, it's really interesting because it is so much of the time we look at crimes and the criteria for a crime is based on the perpetrator's actions, right? Like you have to meet you to be arrested for burglary. You have to have entered a dwelling or a structure with the intent to commit a felony. Um, It's, it's just based on the action of the offender and stalking is one of those that sort of developed out of actually the reaction and perception of the victim and how they were feeling because stalking is a cluster of behaviors or a combination or multitude of behaviors that kind of aren't that big of a deal or seem harmless until it's done over and over and over again. And it's completely controlling the victim's life. Absolutely. It it horribly impacts the victim's life. Um, So we're talking about, uh, it can include illegal means of harassment, but it could also just be, you know, annoying or sort of routine, Actions that then becomes this cluster of activities that evokes fear and distress in a victim. Um, and once they've lost control over their lives and their environment because they're editing their their routines and their behaviors and they're shaping their environment to avoid this other person or what the harassment that they're causing, this does so much damage. I, I mean, you can imagine how distressing that would be, but... It completely changes their worldview. I mean, seeing the world as an unsafe and untrustworthy place. I mean, chronic long-term issues for victims. 
Um, so it's sort of like terrorism. What is central to the crime is the reaction of the victim and how they then go out and lead their lives. So terrorists think, hey, if, and I know we've talked about this before, I think um, we we're talking about the Orlando Pulse nightclub shooting. That's what terrorism is. It's to disrupt, disrupt your a, a person's seemingly normal life so they're held in fear. And there is where the power is. Um, but it's a very victim-centered crime. It is up to the discretion of the victim of what they deem harassing and therefore stalking. Um, victims, on average, are harassed or stalked. The stalking period is about 13 months say average because we're talking about all forms of stalking um, and all types of relationships but the majority third a third of it is an ex-spouse specifically 28 um, percent of the perpetrators were casual acquaintances with the victim 14 percent are former romantic partner or somebody that they dated even you know one time only 8% of the time is it a stranger, so what we kind of touched on with celebrity, um, and then 5% of the time it's a family member. So um, women are more likely to be stalked by a former intimate partner, and men are more likely to be stalked by a casual casual acquaintance, where there maybe wasn't even a romantic interlude. I think also, I just want to add in yeah. here something that I think is really important as a, a you know uh, an overarching paradigm of this when we took the influences of gender and socialization but the idea that i think we're more aware aka woke to this now than we were in the past but growing up i remember sort of this predominant message was well if you really like her you have to show her how much you like her which also then a step further is well, she's just ignoring you because she wants you to work harder. Right. Oh, or yeah. Or she's pretending not to, to She's playing hard to get. So you have to work harder. And that's a, a, a terrible message well, to send I think to of anyone, the classic scene child. from Say Anything, the movie where he's holding the radio up outside her window, How right? fucking creepy. And every, <laughs> but that's like an iconic movie scene, Completely right? Completely iconic. And there's... I mean, we could probably just sit here and read a list of all of the movies where if he just tries hard enough, it ends up with her okay right, and living happily ever after. Thing, yeah. yeah. I mean, I remember like there was uh, going as Sorry, far John back Cusack, as reading. I know. I mean, but, I mean, well, it's also just sort of, you know, looking through, looking through experience through a different lens. I mean, yeah. there's something, you know, there's. An interesting. I won't say who it is because this is a, this is another episode. But there's a, a, a Netflix stand-up special right now of a comedian who's been through a particularly challenging time in the last year. And one of the things that he says is, you know, time gives us all sorts of perspective. And in mm. 50 years, we're probably going to look back and go, did you know that people used to walk past the homeless and just let them lay there? on the sidewalk instead of doing anything. Wow. So yeah. it's yeah. about how, you know, our perspective changes, oh, totally. you know, totally. We'll get into that more with some of the movies I'm going to cover. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, so with the, the class, there's different classifications, uh, as I, I talked about, um, as I broke down the percentages, but the official classifications of, 
offenders when it comes to stalking um, can be broken down this way. So there's what we call prior intimates. So there has been a prior romantic relationship, but it could also be an emotionally intimate relationship as well. So like really close friends or a longstanding business relationship. Um, This usually includes behaviors like following, surveillance, Guys, put a caveat map. Please. So, what I want to add into that as we come back around to is that you're saying that there is a relationship there. Let's also leave room for a perceived relationship. Now, that goes into the non, they don't know each other. Like you're talking about these are intimates. Yes, these are emotionally intimate relationships. Right. And then there are some that have no connection whatsoever. And yet the nature of their mental illness or their delusions is that they are in these intimate relationships. You can talk about that in the celebrity piece. Yes. Um, So yeah, so following surveillance, property damage, all the way up into threats and violence happen in these types of relationships or stalking incidents. Um, with with this type of relationship, the duration of the stalking behavior increases usually with the stalker's emotional investment in the relationship. So the longer it's gone on and the more invested they are, it'll probably last longer or probably be more severe. Right. Um, then there's the friends or casual acquaintance category. Um, This is the one that I say men sort of suffer as victims from more than women. And it's when someone that's a casual acquaintance in their life is really looking to try and start a romantic relationship with them. But they are then dismissed or rejected. Um, When you think of the infatuation um, of a woman with a man that's untouchable or, you know, it's not realistic that they would be together for whatever reason, this is sort of that... Um, category and the victim is often driven by the rejection, the humiliation that comes with that, and that if I just work hard enough and show him what he's missing out on, eventually he'll be mine. We'll live happily ever after. I just have to find the way to change myself to make myself more attractive. To oh him. yeah, I mean, yeah, that yeah. is pathological yes. right yes. there. Yes. Um, there's also. <laughs> Here we go. We we could talk about this one. Actually, you can talk about this one. Um, it's a category redeemed. It, it's called professional contacts. And so when certain professionals are in frequent contact with the lonely and disordered, so mental health professionals, um, primary care physicians, social workers, lawyers, teachers, um, dancers at Disneyland... <laughs> Um, hang on, we'll get. We will circle back to that. that yeah, Don't that's worry. A, that's actually a real thing. Um, <clears throat> where sympathy and attention is part of the relationship, the professional relationship, but it's easily reconstructed as romantic interest by the patient or the client. It's a misinterpretation. Absolutely. Um, so the behaviors that are most common with this are repeated phone calls, letter writing. And then when it goes sour, attack on the professional's uh, reputation. So it can be complaints to the workplace, contact, contacting their pers- professional boards and making complaints, um, all the way up into you know some of the other more threatening and, and violent behavior. But it's it's a lot of this sort of harassment that I talked about. Um, can we stop for an interlude about your experience? 
here? Did you want to yeah. talk about it here? Is oh, that okay? Yeah, I mean, there's these are some things that are a little more, bit more lighthearted than some of the other things we're going to be talking about yeah. later. But um, I wanted to give a perspective because when I talk a little bit later, I'm going to talk about the ones that are not so common but are based in mental health issues um, and, and based on uh, delusional disorder. I have not myself experienced that as a, as a victim, but I do have an interesting take on it. So I have two incidents that I want to share. And one is that when I moved here uh, years ago, in, a, in, in my in three careers ago, um, <laughs> And I was fresh to L.A. My One of my first jobs was as a kid, kid of the kingdom. And what is that? A kid of the kingdom is a performer at Disneyland. Okay. So uh, I was is in Is that the what sh- they called you guys instead of cast members back Yeah, then? we were called kids of the kingdom. That's kind of creepy. <laughs> I don't know. It, it, once, well, it, it wasn't then. Now, oh, yeah. now it, it is, you know. Okay. but true. Um, it was a great job. It was a union gig. Um, it was a really cool show uh, that was done... Uh, Oh my gosh! That that theater was so. It was what well, used to be called Videopolis. Videopolis. I yeah. So it was that. a dance club at night, and then it was this enormous outdoor theater, you know, doing five shows a day. So it was. Is that really the one strenuous. in um, Tomorrowland? Like no. where the Star Wars stuff is? It's now? over by Fantasy. Is um, it's over by it's a small world. Oh yeah. And okay. now it's called Mickey's oh, Magic Map. Yeah, I yeah, think. yeah. <clears throat> okay, right. we are just way too much of Disney geeks to be talking okay. about that. But here's the thing that happened. Um, it was a show based on Snow White. So it was like kind of condensing into 35 minutes. Can I guess which dwarf you were? I was not a dwarf. <laughs> I was a kid of the kingdom. I was a backup dancer. And there were two casts. Um, and it was four days on, four days off. So it was a really great gig um, with union benefits and union pay and some of the most hilarious people I've ever worked with. It was really great. So we're in the middle of rehearsals, and about three weeks in, uh, four guys in suits come in looking very, very official. And they have, us, they have both casts line up. Uh, against one of the walls. And I was thinking, oh, shit, we're going to get fired. People are getting fired for something. And they were walking, and they would look at us very intently, and there were people being picked out. Oh, my God. Like, you stand over there. You stand over there. And I was one of the ones, you need to come with us. Immediately, like, what did I do? You know, I thought I was going to get fired. Go to to Disney jail? Go to Disney jail, yeah. (laughs) Oh, you're fucked up now. (laughs) Um, so what happened was, is like, it was, you know, about 50, 50 male and female and we get taken to a corner and we get sat down at a table and the guys introduce themselves as security and they give us this very odd kind of vague, uh, speech. And what they say is you fit a profile physically that generally gets a lot of attention and I looked around and I was like, what is it about us? And it was, you know, there were, you know, we weren't just all white, um, right. blonde, blue eyed. I'm not blue eyed. I'm brown eyed and right. have brown hair. But we had like certain features uh-huh. like, you know, and, and I mean, every dancer is in shape. So it's not like we, we were like that in better shape or anything. But it was sort of a look like big, big white smiles and, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. And they said, but what we have come to know over the years of doing live shows at Disney is that your physical characteristics will tend to draw 
certain individual's attention. And what we encourage you to do is not respond in any way. Don't be too friendly. Don't be rude, but don't be friendly with them. Don't. And I, w- I mean, we're, I was so young at the time. I was like, what are we talking about? Right. Like, it's that big of a deal. Like, you got to be kidding. It's not that big of a deal. And I think it's super progressive of the security team at Disney to have identified this and then be sort of proactive about it. That's yeah. I mean, really, for that time, I mean, that's, that's good. Um, risk assessment. It, it really is. I mean, for that long ago, and it was a, it was a very long time ago. Sure. I mean, it's, it's way sort of not even in the ballpark of what we have now, right. but, um, and I, I didn't take it seriously. Right. I did not take it seriously. And I was with, I have a, a good friend, Darren Cormier, who's a, he's a, a, a nurse, uh, in new Orleans. And he was out here for several years as a performer, like I was. And he and I, got mistaken for being brothers a lot because we had the same look and we were next to each other in the show. And I noticed after about two weeks that there were two middle-aged women sitting in the front row every single show, four days a week. So that's five shows a day, four days a week, Whoa! which was blowing my mind. I mean, we were like, you know, you're so young, you just don't put things into context. You're like, what the hell is this? That's kind of crazy. And we're kind of like, as we're doing the dance numbers, we're so far, like you can talk out of the corner of your mouth and Darren's going like, and he's got this strong Louise Andrews, like Scott, those women are looking at you. I'm like, no, they're not. They're looking at you. No, they're looking at you. I can tell. Watch. And so he dances away from me and I notice that like their, their faces stay focused on me. I'm like, oh, that's, that's weird. And then I noticed that one of them had a video camera all the time. It was on on oh, me God. all the time and the other one was snapping pictures so like, <laughs> so instead you know, of humpty and dumpty they were lonely and disordered <laughs> i don't well i mean i don't it, you know this one had a a, a a weird but decent ending but you know my dance partner connie um in the show she and i did like we did like pas de deux and lifts and stuff and her parents came from like ohio for a weekend and they were seeing the shows and they happened to sit next to the women and said, Oh, our daughter Connie is in the show. Once they figured out an in, an in, they were like, can we meet? Can we meet Scott? Can we meet him? We really want to meet him. And Con and I said, well, I'm not, we're not supposed to do that. Like the, the, those guys told us not to engage. And, um, I mean, who knows? I would, I was so young and dumb if it had been like some, hot person like I probably would like oh yeah I want to meet you but you know it was like these two late like what do I know what do I know so um, Connie comes back and she says she's white as a sheet and she has a stack of pictures and she said well they want me to give these to you and it was hundreds of pictures of me with her and she said Scott that's not what's creepy is this. And she held up one of the pictures and she had been cut out of all the photos like the, that we'd be like kind of holding each other and arms outstretched. And she was doing what we call like a death spiral lift and they'd cut her picture off at the wrist. And so they had like, so little like, Hey, you're not in any of our pictures. In fact, we cut you out, but can you go deliver these? Oh my God. And I was like, are you kidding me? That she goes, that's not, they said that they have like albums and albums of just you in the show. 
And so I met them, like I ended up like kind of not being able to avoid them and they were very friendly and awkward yeah, and like very like fans. They were they were nice, and I was kind of like, oh well, it's nice to meet you, and I got to go to a rehearsal, and um, so I thought that was that. And then yeah. when my contract ended, somehow they had gotten my my home address, and <gasps> I started. I got Christmas cards. I got for a couple of years. Holy shit! So I was I ever threatened? I was never threatened, but it was it like now looking back on it, it feels very invasive and weird. And like, and how how did you get my address? Right. Well, I later found out that they actually were administrative employees of of the park, and that's I mean, well, you're not wow. clearly not doing your job if you're if you're at all these shows, the shows five days a week, and then you're digging into employee records. Yeah, I mean that was that was really creepy, but wow. like no harm ever came from it. And but now let me show you some telling. Not yet, uh, not no, yet, kidding. really. They could still be after me. Boy, that'd be sad if they saw this fat ass trying to <laughs> fit in that costume. Um, but. Now, being on the other side, years later, I had this really fantastic gig. It was my last gig in entertainment, working as uh, a researcher, legal clearance, um, and uh, segment producer for DVDs. And one of the biggest projects I got to work on, which is still to my one of the my, I'm so proud of this work for uh, Peller and Multimedia, uh, was doing the. Supplemental supplemental DVD materials for the Lord of the Rings movies. So this was a, back in the day when you would buy a set of DVDs and there would be four additional DVDs right. full of documentaries. Right. Here's how we made the helmets. Here's how we designed the sets. Nerd, <laughs> I mean, it's really nerd amazing. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Total nerd alert. So... There was a point at which one of the, it wasn't the segments I was working on, but this editor came to me and said, Hey, we're doing a special on Pippin and Mary, who are the two younger hobbits that go on the quest. Stop rolling your eyes. You're totally rolling your eyes. Uh, What are you talking about? What? What are we talking about? (laughs) So, one of the actors is a a British actor or Irish actor, my Irish, Dominic Monaghan. He is. An amazing actor. He was on Lost afterwards. I mean, he's had oh, like yeah, a yeah, really yeah. interesting career. So what I was doing was they were. I was tasked with, we need you to listen to all of this B footage, which was him being interviewed on set. So they would have seven years that it took to do all these movies. And they would like, hey, how's it like to wear this costume? Or what do you miss most about being away from your family. So I was sitting for hours and hours listening to interviews of this unbelievably intelligent and charming young man who was funny and wise beyond his years and incredibly grounded for being in what's going to be this huge world phenomenon of entertainment. And all I just remember coming away from it going, Oh God, what a nice guy. Like what a really cool guy. And, really liking him. So our offices were on Hollywood Boulevard and about four months later, we completely finished that project. We moved on to something else and I'm walking down the street and Dominic Monaghan is walking down the street with his girlfriend. So, and everybody calls him Dom and I was like, Dom, how you doing? Hey, it's so good to see you. 
So the look of terror that came on this guy's face. Oh, I bet. And I caught myself in that moment going, oh, fuck, I don't know him. We've never met. We've never met. I've just been sitting in a fucking dark room watching hours and hours hours of interviews with you. We're best friends. We're we're best (laughs) friends. So in that moment, I had a slip. And I remember like laughing at myself then because it was before I made the career switch. Uh But now looking back at that in the context of, of... stalking and delusional belief systems here's someone i'm not disordered right. or or you know i'm neurotypical in most ways and i fell for it for that right. brief moment right. so you can see if someone is disordered or has something else going on as a primary drive how easy it would be to fall into that and sure. the but i remember so distinctly the terror in his eyes and then trying to back up from going Oh, I'm so sorry. I don't know you. I work with Pellerin Multimedia. We're right, right here in this. Trying and to of course, yourself. he's, I mean, by now he's a celebrity. So who knows what other horrible experiences he's totally. had. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, kind of runs away with his girlfriend, which right. he did the smart thing. Right. Was like, I could have been dangerous. Right. But. Wow. Anyway. That's so interesting. The the two sides of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, catching yourself in that. But like you said, so easy to get wrapped up in just your perspective. And then here's this just happenstance meeting right. that you just reacted on. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. That, that that kind of, I mean, you think about sort of the people that are so socially isolated. We even talked about this in our, in our work about our episode about incels right. and that phenomenon. People who just have these very isolated lives and, you know, become obsessed with a particular show and mm-hmm. that becomes their reality. Mm-hmm. And in the certainly in the case of uh, Rebecca Schaefer, she moved from being a television actress into doing feature films. And she moved into doing things that were arty and edgy. And the big shift for her was a movie called Scenes from the Class Struggle in Beverly Hills. Right. She's an adult and she has not really a sex scene, but she's in bed with another actor. And that was what pushed... Bardo. Bardo over the edge. Right. Because she suddenly, was this girl next door, innocent, pure being before. Exactly. And now, and that even he says that in his interviews, is like, you're just a typical Hollywood whore. So right. now right. he's been pushed over the edge. He's got that... I mean, interesting to think if there was any sort of suicidality in his background, mm-hmm. because when there's that fluidity between suicidality and homicidality, all it needs is one trigger for it to ignite into violence. Yeah. Yeah. So there's three more categories of relationships. The um, the next one is workplace contacts. So this can be any variation of employer-supervisor, employer-employee, um, employee, employee, or customer and service provider. Um, so, do we have stats on that? Because I had, I'm, I, I actually did not know about that particular category. Is I don't there... have any stats beyond um, just sort of that being a category, and then it's usually either like a would be suitor becoming um, obsessed and stalking. Again, like a, an, a romantic interest. And what a perfect environment, because you're there 40 hours a week. Right. Right? Much like my two stalkers <laughs> at Disneyland. Yes. <laughs> Sitting in the heat, just yes, sweating and exactly. filming me. Um, or it's more of disgruntled employee. So, you know, we've talked about um, threat assessment and people that feel like they need to right wrongs when they feel like they've been wronged. Um, and that might include stalking someone and then exploding into violence 
at some point for revenge. Um, and then there's the stranger category. So this is the case in which the victims are not aware of the perpetrator. The perpetrator, again, may think that they're, they have more of a relationship with the person. I always like to use the example of like a woman who works at like a 7-Eleven and hundreds and hundreds of customers, right, right, in and out. And one customer might think because he comes in when she's working and they have this exchange that they know each other. But to her, she wouldn't be able to pick him out. Yeah. He's just another customer. So they are strangers. Um, and a lot of the stranger stalking scenarios, the stalking happens as a plan to a sexual attack right. in the future. So whether it's um, an adult, it could be a child that is the victim of this. Um, but And the targets are selected based on things like physical attractiveness or social status. Because that, I mean, that's a lot of times the only thing they're going on because they don't know the person. Right. They're going with what what's on the outside, um, and obviously, the, this day and age, this can be done a lot more via the internet and online. Frighteningly and some of, so. Yeah, yeah. A, a lot like the big um, Netflix movie You, where um, the individual did a lot of his homework when stalking this customer up front. And then turn that into this happenstance relationship that he gets into with her by knowing all these things about her. And then, okay, this is how I'm going to formulate myself so she likes me and thinks I'm everything she's looking for. Um, yeah, that's going to work. Yeah. Yeah, that's it worked like, out really interesting yeah. in that show. Um, and then there's the famous. So um, the famous, the celebrity, this is what we were talking about with a lot of delusions that come in and how law enforcement agencies are dealing with this. Right. So you and I are pretty coy about right. our day jobs. Right. Um, it's safe to say that we both peripherally are exposed to this and without... I mean, we live and work in Los Angeles. Exactly. So. And one of the things I'll say is that I have uh, experience with work the Los Angeles Police Department in the division called uh, TMU, which is the Threat Management Unit. And this is, I mean, this this is amazing to me because it it really is like a TV show. Sometimes, you know, you and I will be talking about how things are so far from reality. They're not really, you know, law and order so many times is not based on what really happens at a police station or a division. But the Threat Management Unit, like they could just turn on a camera and that would be fascinating yeah. because these are detectives highly, highly experienced in, um, in evaluating threats to high profile or even if they're not high profile, if it's a potential for a high profile stalking case, mm -hmm. not because the victim is high profile, but because it's so egregious and gotcha. potential. Right. And one of the things that, that they deal with is really the, the reality of fame, you know, and, and having my background, having come from, you know, working as a performer, but then transitioning into casting and working in production and talent management, I'm, I'm, I have a perspective on, you know, people who really want to seek celebrity. You know, there are some people out there like Lisa Rinna, 
who's one of the real housewives and has been a soap star. I have a lot of admiration for her because she's really authentic. I'm not really an actress. I'm not really that great. I wanted to be famous. This is what I'm doing. This is my goal. Mm-hmm. You know what? She's authentic. Go for right. it. Right? You know, she's being honest with herself. Right. And then I think other people's motivations maybe are a little bit murkier as well as people that just want to be actors. Uh-huh. But do they really know what they're signing up for. And I don't think any of them know because well, and at the beginning they have to say like, who cares? I want this so bad. That might be a consequence, but they're not going to cross that bridge until they actually see it or becomes real. Right. And and if they did, then we might be, you know, bereft of some amazing talent. I right. mean, that's, that right. would be the trade off, which is, you know, yeah. you can't, I mean, that's a, a what if that we don't know about, but you know, it's, this is this has been around. I mean, this has been around stalking and a sort of a delusional obsession with high profile people has been around for hundreds of years. And in Victorian England, it was focused on the queen. You know that the queen is conspiring against me, or the the queen is communicating me through with commu- communicating to me through right. these odd means, and I have a special relationship with this politician. But now we live in an, an era that is a cult of celebrity where. You know, there's all different levels of celebrity. There are YouTube stars that are being stalked. There are Instagram yeah, influencers. That, that are more accessible, really. Right. And, right? and, and mean, celebrities are more accessible than they've ever been because so much of celebrity is based on social media presence. And basically, your publicist and your agent are telling you, hey, we got to get your Instagram followers up. Right. You know, you look at the number that Taylor Swift has, and God forbid you say something bad about Taylor Swift because those Swifties will, uh, they will. They'll cut you off at the knees, right? <laughs> they will. They've done it to a couple of celebrities. But you think about like um, the classic, like saying where you're at and, you know, posting and tagging a location and then. When Kim Kardashian was robbed, is it in Paris? Right. And the dangers of that, um, how it, it just, it's, it's like happening in real time. Right. So let's say, like, as a perfect example, is an actor who part of his, uh, say he's been an actor on a, a relatively well received television show for six seasons. Six seasons, you're set. Basically, you're making a lot of money. That's enough for a show to go into syndication that's going to then get you residuals for years. If you work your money right, you don't ever have to work again. However, a lot of people parlay that into other things, such as, you know, it could be one wants to be a lifestyle guru or one wants to be, well, that's a perfect example. Gwyneth Paltrow had a a horrific stalker after her for years. Um, But in this day and age where... Let's say that actor decides he's going to write a book. Well, part of promoting that book is being on Instagram. Hey, I'm at Vroman's this right. Tuesday night at 7 p.m. Please come by. Right. The person who is the delusional stalker will in, in, integrate that into their belief system and say, oh, he's telling me where he's going to where be. He's gonna be. That's, that's an open down. invitation to come down. So anyway, to, to circle back around to the TMU, they deal with this. On a regular basis, um, they educate law enforcement from around the country on this. And then there's a whole private industry that's built up by a great author, uh, Gavin DeBecker. Right. Uh, What did he write? The Gift of Fear? The book is The Gift of Fear. If you are a young woman or have daughters, buy this book. My dad gave it to me, I think, right around my 18th birthday. 
and it is phenomenal to 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 sit back and be mindful of here's how we need to act and listen to our gut and react in order to keep ourselves safe i mean it's it sort of was the original fuck politeness stay sexy don't get murdered yeah. you know um my favorite murder mantras it gavin de becker was putting this out in a book 20 years ago yeah. and um you know the classic scenario is like we are as women are raised to be so goddamn polite all the time and it we don't want to be rude when it's just us and a man who's given us the fucking creeps to get into the elevator with him to get into a steel locked box with someone that we have a weird you know hair on the back of our neck standing up issue and we just do it because oh my god how rude would it be if this is just a nice guy Screw that. Wait for the next elevator. Go into the bathroom and wait. So it's a wonderful book that talks about all of these scenarios. Um, He has some follow-up books that go into some other issues, especially when we talk about like um, when terrorism after 9-11 came up and just being aware and being hypervigilant. Yeah. I mean, he also has a a private security firm in Los Angeles that could – that could be a – there could be a show about that. Yeah. You know, because he does – he works with the police. He works with the various police agencies. And, you know, I, I think that sometimes the, the, there's, they sort of, they work together very closely, but then what I can, I can see is probably problematic sometimes is that from a police perspective, from a law enforcement, law enforcement perspective, excuse me, the first thing that we're going to encourage, and I've even done this as a mental health professional, you know, pairing with, a law enforcement is I'll be telling someone you need to re- file a restraining order. Right. You need to ha- it needs to happen right now. And the reality is, is that in many cases that restraining order has very blunt teeth. It's not going to help that much, but it is the beginning of a paper trail. And that's Correct. part of what's wrong with our system is that we place women as well as male victims, people in this position, we put them in the position of being responsible for creating that paper trail for their safety. And it shouldn't be that way. Right. And I think and so then there are other private firms that will go, oh, well, no, you're really famous. And we don't want, if we call attention to this, then TMZ is going to get on it. And then mm-hmm. you're going to call even more attention. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's two ways to look at yeah. it. I would always err on the side of caution and say we'll start with the restraining order work with the police you know and but you're right i remember in working in law enforcement and there was one particular stalking case that kind of sticks out to me that just a woman in our city was dealing with her ex-husband and as a law enforcement officer trying to help her night after night when she would call with something new I felt so incredibly helpless and telling her to get a restraining order as the words were coming out of my mouth. I'm like, this isn't going to do shit for this guy. Like it, it is just a piece of paper. And she asked me that, like, how is this going to protect me? And what am I supposed to tell her? You know, it's, it's not, and we're going to do the best we can, but our hands were so tied with, I know, but well, let let me, let's be plain though, where, where it does, it lays the groundwork because, God forbid something happens and she has not, he or she has not filed a restraining order. The first thing, if it goes to trial, if it goes to any legal action, the first thing that defense attorney from the other side is going to do is turn around and go, 
well, you must have not have been threatened because you didn't file a restraining oh, yeah. order. All the way down the line. But how is that helping her tonight? It doesn't. It's not. And she's terrified. And Well, the only thing that helps in a situation like that is, is actually practical action, which is what DeBecker right. talks about, right. which is... And but then we also have to look at it in terms of you know it's the same it's the same issue that comes up in in the subject of domestic violence of once again we are putting the responsibility on the victim of a potential crime yep. to take all these actions with that may not be practical right like if it's a single mom and she's got two toddlers and we're telling her you need to get out of your house and go stay somewhere where yeah. nobody knows you it's like well how Where's the fuck am go? I going to do that I don't yeah. have any money I don't have any means. Perhaps they don't have a support system that will allow them to do that. Yes, that's We're definitely the uniqueness of this crime. So, in Los Angeles, how far do people come to come try and meet or stalk their... Literally all over the world. Wow. Literally all over the world. And I can get totally... When I've had a couple of glasses of wine in me, I'll get totally hippy-dippy about like the energetic underpinnings of why that happens. Uh But on a base level, you know, the most obvious is it's because this is the center of entertainment. And we, you know, back in the ancient times, the, the celebrities were Zeus and Hera and Aphrodite. And in today's world, it's celebrities. Mm -hmm. You know, these are our gods Mm -hmm. and they rise and they fall very quickly, but people get obsessed. I mean, we have people that come here, like the number of people that come here from around the world that are convinced they're married to Kanye is unbelievable. I mean, it's it's crazy, but that, but he's not the only one. There are plenty of, of B and C and D level celebrities that are like, wait, what? This person thinks that we're in a relationship. And, and I've been in the position of having to lead them through, this is what's going on. Mm -hmm. This is how you need to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. I've also been on the other side where, you know, working with, I mean, what I generally work with when it comes to, if it gets referred to me in my position, it's because that individual who is stalking generally falls into the diagnostic category of delusional disorder. Right. So, and we have, we'll go over some of that, but like the the delusional, the delusional is a, a delusion is a fixed belief. And I mean, fixed, like it is solid. It's not going anywhere and it might not like we don't we don't include it with schizophrenia because this person is not having auditory or visual hallucinations per se but they might interpret hey I'm sitting here at the gym and while I'm working out I'm listening to music and I'm pretty sure that Brad Pitt is sending me a message mm-hmm. through this song. Mm-hmm. He's telling me that he really wants me to come visit him and that we sh- we need to solidify our relationship. Right. So they're not actually hearing that. They well, obviously, but they're it's a belief right. rather than experiencing an auditory hallucination. So let me and let me give a caveat here. Like um, every, I want the audience listening to understand that every example I give is an actual example. Okay. However, okay. it has been de-identified. Right. So I have I may have switched the gender. I may have switched the race. I may have switched the level of celebrity. I may have switched the description of the perpetrator. But these are all things that happen literally on a daily basis Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. Los Angeles. I have a friend that um, is a police officer in the Hollywood area, and he and I went to the academy together, 
and he was telling me what a trip it was to work in Hollywood because the differences between, you know, dealing with the homeless individual who is covered in bed bugs and sleeping on the street and doesn't care to responding to such and such celebrity's house because some guy was just caught outside their house with a hacksaw in his trunk and just and duct tape and right. rope and chloroform right. yes right yes um just what an interesting diverse place that is to work yeah and you know the especially when you get to that particular example i mean one that was very big in the news years ago was steven spielberg had a stalker and this guy had the type of i mean he was so ill and his he had an erotomanic fixation with Steven Spielberg and another another celebrity, but his plan was quite violent. I mean, he had really thought out this elaborate plan and had the van tricked out, like an SNM, a BDSM van tricked out with a complete rape and kidnapping kit. I mean, he he had a, a, wow. a legit plan because he had a perceived grudge, and mm-hmm. so that's that goes back into mm-hmm. the categories that you were talking about. I mean, there's delusional and a perceived grudge, right? Yeah. A perceived grudge. Well, so that is his delusion. So there yeah. could be perceived like we like they could have the perception that they're in a relationship, or they could have the perception that this person has done them wrong. I mean, right. I remember one case where. Uh, an individual was um, going after a, a very rapidly rising female actress because this perpetrator felt that her career had been stolen. Like that was my, that was my job. I was supposed to get that job. Well, this person doesn't have an agent, has never auditioned, never even got close to that. That but that was supposed to be my job, Jeez. and they are convinced of it. So you know, there when we look at the classifications of delusional disorder, which once again, like I was saying, is a a fixed, um, solid system of belief about the the world around them. Um, that can fall into different categories. There's about six different categories, but the one that are most really specific to the idea of stalking are erotomania, which is it's this the fixed delusion, the fixed belief that another person, and generally a celebrity or a you know a prominent figure, is in love with the perpetrator and they will, they may breach laws and they will do anything to make contact with the desired person. Then there's, there's a grandiose typology, which is sort of, um, a grandiosity is a word that means, you know, that everything I do is great. Like I have the best ideas. I have the best approach to everything, everything I should. Or like, I am the Queen of England. I am, exactly, yeah. <laughs> I can't be in this jail, are you kidding me? Right. My, my people will be calling you right now to get me out. Exactly. So a delusion like that actually doesn't generally focus on another person because right. it's so internal. Right. Um, occasionally that will turn into uh, involving a victim. But the other two types that we were talking about that are, so we start with erotomatic, erot, erotomatic, God, why can't I pronounce I don't know. That's I, a hard one for me, too. I think it's the weather. I'm blaming it on the weather why I can't oh, pronounce today. But there's also <laughs> the jealous type, so the delusion that the person's sexual partner or intimate partner is unfaithful, and that is untrue. They are not unfaithful. And they may basically stalk, follow 
monitor with cameras, with emails, I mean, all sorts of monitoring. Yep. And very, very sad cases because these are fixed. Like there is oh, no, totally. there's no breaking out of that. Pretty sure I have a client like that right now. But, but also, you know, not statistically necessarily prone to violence, but it can be triggered into violence. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the, subca- the subcategory of persecutory type, which it believes that this person is like, this woman stole my job. This, my landlord from 30 years ago, my landlord from 30 years ago has followed me from apartment to apartment and she breaks in and she moves things around. She never steals anything. She's trying to drive me crazy. Right. Now that, that's... Yes. With with some de-identification, that's a literal mm-hmm. case I had. I bet. So the problem with these people with delusional disorder is that, generally speaking, they're very high functioning. Yep. They, you know, I mean, there are some that are quite low functioning, but there are others that hold jobs and they can be very guarded about this particular area of their life. They don't have insight into their delusion, but they do have enough insight to know that they can't talk about it around other people or they will be regarded as crazy. Yep. So that's yep. really, really difficult to deal with. It is. But they feel comfortable seeking out treatment because you're now a therapist that will listen to it and not necessarily judge them for it or call them crazy and then they can get it out so someone's someone's buying into their True, belief. but the minute you challenge it, they're gone. Yeah. And the minute you challenge any of that, I mean, there are some people, there's, there's actually a, a technique, there's a, like a sort of a motivational interviewing technique for trying to break through some of the delusions. And one of them is sort of the paranoid um, delusion that people are, that let's flip it around instead of them being stalked, they are being stalked. And there's mm. the idea that, you know, that I'm fu- fully functioning in all these different ways, but for some reason, these people are following me in cars. Yeah. And I know they're following me. I see them. They have blacked out windows, and sometimes they're in the trees outside. So that falls into a category. That's actually a non-bizarre delusion because that's actually within the realm of reality. Sure. Right? Sure. We're not saying that um, demonic ghost women are raping you right. nightly, right. which would be a bizarre delusion. But a, a non-bizarre is something that actually could happen and mm-hmm. that brings up the idea of functional paranoia versus delusional paranoia so functional paranoia is people are out to get me well yeah i live in a gang infested neighborhood and i'm an ex-gang member and these people may be after me that's right that's actual that functional paranoia is keeping you healthy right. you have to stay on your feet right right oh okay so what was i going to go to after that um so one of the things that this delusion is fixed and persistent. No matter the amount of evidence you come up with is going to displace that. No, Kim Kardashian is sending me notes. Right. There's no arguing with it or changing their mind. Absolutely not. Right. So it's out of keeping and it's very unlikely for, it's just unlikely that it's happening. So here's someone that's like a, um, uh, a seven 11 cashier in Wetumpka, Alabama but somehow she has a relationship with uh, with uh, Channing Tatum. Right. You know, that's just not really likely. But somehow she's developed this mm-hmm. and it's going to be fixed and, and non-moving. You know, any attempts to contradict that belief are generally very unsuccessful. Does Do you know if here in the United States or where you work, um, does anyone use... 
what sort of assessments do you use? And do you guys use the dash, which is... I don't know the dash. So the dash... Usually the general threat assessment is like, are your thoughts to harm this person? Well, not... So so this is more specifically for stalking and domestic type situations. So the dash is a risk assessment and management model that was developed by Laura Richards. So right. you guys okay. might know her from yeah. podcast um, Real Crime Profile with Jim Clemente. Um, she was co-producer on the case of John Benet Ramsey and um, consulting producer on the Dirty John uh, Netflix. Or not, was it Netflix? Was it? No. It was on television. Yeah. Um, but so she is a renowned international expert on domestic violence, stalking, sexual behavior, um, homicide and risk assessment. And she's, she's out of the UK. Um, but she developed this assessment model is really interesting. I, I, I'm not trained in it. I haven't looked, I have looked at it. Um, but it's basically a scoring mechanism. It looks like you do an interview with the victim. Um, and you're talking about all kinds of things, you know, from behaviors, relationships, feelings, are you feeling depressed or having suicidal thoughts? Has, you know, so-and-so ever hurt the children? Is the abuse getting worse? And that's particularly important when, I mean, from all the literature that I've read, is that looking at the social support network, they may have some family or they may have some limited social network, Mm -hmm. but their predominant delusion and obsession takes up so much of their bandwidth that they really don't have much of a support system otherwise. And that's why we see the statistics rise for men being the perpetrators because, and I, I can't help but link it to the incel yeah. phenomenon yeah. as well. Sure. It's like, sure. you know, basically sitting in a dark room and surrounding yourself yeah. with, you know, this, this tunnel vision. Um, yeah. But this, this, so this is an interview that's done with the victim of a stalking case where you ask about the current situation. You ask about effects on children or dependents, the domestic violence history, um, and about the abuser, and basically uh, y- y- you tally this up and it looks at, okay, what's the risk to the victim, standard, medium, or high? Um, but I know she's she's also created a foundation um, called Paladin, and it's the world's first national stalking advocacy service. So a lot of what they do... So their definition, it, it, this was a, a really good definition of stalking that I found, um, is, quote, a pattern of unwanted, fixated, and obsessive behavior which is intrusive and causes fear of violence or serious alarm or distress. And the Paladin Foundation, they provide trauma-informed support, advice and advocacy to high-risk victims. They raise awareness of dangers and risks of stalking, um, campaign on the behalf of victims, just a lot of really good work there. One of her missions right now is to try and get um, a registry for repeat uh, high-risk stalkers and domestic abusers. I think I completely concur with I that. I think that's I such think an interesting concept. And for, I, for repeat, you know, not just right. the first timer. Like, let's not fuck this up like we did with sex offender registry. <laughs> right, right. Um, but I think it's really interesting work. That's but even, done. you know, once again, like when we talked in other episodes about the sex offender registry and the idea, we I know that we've touched on this before, the idea that we... we we got a lot of people caught in that net mm-hmm. that don't necessarily need to be in there. You know, the right. it, 
and that it actually it, it destabilizes them and makes them more risky to the community. Exactly, and I, the same thing could happen in these cases right. with stalkers. That you know that if we don't try and tease out the difference between them, you know, is it is it something that can be addressed in a different way? Yeah, yeah. Did you want to talk about anything else before I skip to the movies? Uh, what did I want to say? I wanted to say that, um, you know, these, when we talk about the idea of delusions, they can last for an incredibly long time, um, because they are so fixed. And while we talk about like, you know, I'd give there are examples, we could just go on and on and on about different celebrities that have been stalked. I mean, every high list, high celebrity. Um, I'm not a huge fan of Gwyneth Paltrow. However, You know, her what she went through with her stalker was brutal, and she had to testify in front of him in court, which I think is absolutely Terrifying. terrible. That you know you have right. to face that. And then there's there's one particular one from the the seventies that you know I'm glad that there's been some research about this, and then it's been published on the web because I think it's a particularly egregious example, and it's also hitting on you know the uh, many different aspects of mental health and how that plays into stalking. And this is about um, the case of Mary Stauffer and her perpetrator, Ming Shen Shui, uh, who is a Taiwanese national. His family uh, immigrated to Minnesota back in the 70s, so or the late 60s, actually. So as a, as a high schooler, uh, Ming Senshui had Miss Stauffer as a teacher and somehow became erotomanically fixated on her to the point where he stalked her for 15 years. So stalked her for 15 years, finally kidnaps her and her daughter uh, and shoves them in the trunk of his car at gunpoint uh, stops later to open the trunk. Two six-year-old boys notice that there are bodies in the trunk. He grabs one of the six-year-old and shoves him in the trunk too because now he has a witness. Later kills that child and then brutally rapes um, Mary for almost up to, up to two weeks. I mean, it's just an awful, awful... Her dead body? No, no, she's still alive. Oh, the child oh, oh. died. Gotcha. Um, she survived, but... Um, the and when she was trying to find out like why his reasoning was that when he had a less than perfect score which ruined his life so none of this was true he built up this delusion around an interaction with her so there was like one interaction with her with her as a teacher and this is a guy that excelled in the it's community like a delusion within a delusion exactly it's inception so exactly and he was like a successful athlete and he was a successful student um, but the, the you know the profundity of his mental illness had an incredible impact in that wow. way, and you know this this poor woman you know was an, incredibly scarred by it. And then the one last thing I'd say before we move on is that if and I highly recommend I remember this reading this article years ago. Wired magazine had an article in two thousand seven um, about really one of the first major cases of cyber stalking. And cyberstalking is pretty commonplace now. Like we have a, there was a, a ridiculous case of a woman with an incredibly successful Harry Potter fan site, and it became like one of the biggest fan sites in the world. 
And some woman in Australia didn't like what she posted and relentlessly stalked her for years. And having to take care of it across international lines oh, just really impacted yeah. this young woman's life. It was horrible. But if, for those of you that are familiar with the, uh, the rock band Linkin Park, uh, Chester Charlie Bennington, who is the lead singer of Linkin Park, had a stalker that was later found to be a government employee working at a nuclear facility that had hacked into his Mac accounts. So this was when the beginning of the cloud was existing. And she knew where he was going. She was following all of his emails because this basically her job took her maybe 15 minutes of an entire day. So the rest of her time, she was obsessed. She was calling at damn night. She hacked into their child's baby monitor. Oh God. I mean, just terrible, terrible things. Now this, and you know, this is someone who wasn't necessarily delusional, but was a big fan and just allowed herself to become obsessed and jealous of his relationship with his wife mm. and their child. Wow. And she terrorized him for years. Rest and in it peace, Chester. I know. It's very mm. sad. Okay, so with the, the stalking laws of the 90s, Hollywood for sure picked that up and ran with it. So some of the most famous movies about stalking, um, actually... Pre-90s, 1987, Fatal Attraction, of course. Um, 1991, which is one of my favorites, and you think of it as just completely terrorizing, but Cape Fear. Yeah. Just the most terrifying ways of stalking an entire family. Um, 1992, we had Single White Female. Oh, that was great. And Unlawful Entry, um, another Ray Liotta classic. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's what our... Our um, watch party supposed to be right. Unlawful entry. Oh no 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 no! Not Ray Liotta. So Ray Liotta was the the firefighter movie. Yeah, the arsonist. Color of Night was. Oh, Color of Night with Bruce Willis. <laughs> right, yes. right, right. Okay, that's our watch party. Hey, we can full you, Chris circle for Yes. <laughs> um, and then my two personal favorites, 1993, brought us The Crush. So The Crush stars. Um, it's our first real introduction to Alicia Silverstone before she was Cher, before she was the Aerosmith video girl, before she was Batgirl, before and, she was Batgirl. Ruined, yes, ruined yes. the franchise <laughs> oh, with Joel Schumacher, um, and also starring Carrie Elwes, which like. What a national treasure. He was just in Stranger Things. Like Literally, he will do anything. I mean, I, he's I a good actor, but he will do anything. And I mean, I'm he's totally Princess okay Bride. With that. I am too. He was, in, he was in the only Saw I ever saw because uh-huh. that was uh-huh. just torture porn. But that was, was the first one. He was in Psych for a while. Um, anyway. So. It wasn't like he was the killer in Along Came a Spider. Oh, yes. Right? Remember? That yes, was from yes, that yes. series of novels. And yes. He was the, the like, drugging Patterson, those women. The Alex Cross series. Yeah. Um, so it, it, 10 minutes into this movie, it's already like, what the fuck? How inappropriate is this <laughs> in this day and age? So Alicia Silverstone plays this 14 year old prodigy, um, sort of upper class girl and her family rents out their back house to Carrie Ellie's character. Who's just like this kind of, he's a reporter. He's a, he's a journalist. Um, and 
this one's interesting because the young girl is the quote-unquote stalker. She takes a romantic interest in him. Um, she's always kind of like popping into the back house and laying out in her bathing suit, playing loud music. So he's watching her. Um, but like within the first 15 minutes, they're at some big party her parents are giving and he's like if you were 10 years older and i was she's four she's supposed to be 14 it's gross um but it gets it gets pretty crazy i mean where she's breaking into his place she's rewriting his articles for work um and then when he reprimands her about this stuff she gets really sad and girlish and like well, you're not going to like me anymore, you know, pouty face. And it's just super creepy (laughs) to watch. I mean, there's one scene where she kisses him. She's like sucking his fingers and it's just super, super (laughs) cringeworthy as, you know, for, I don't know. Weren't you talking about uh, Yeah, that's what I was going to say is like when you, when you picked out that movie, I started (sighs) reading articles on it and there's this really great article written recently about, it's written by somebody that's like your generation. It's a male journalist or entertainment writer. And he remembers that being like a, a seminal movie when sure. he was growing up. Like it was, you know, really, really good. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, well, I should, I'm going to sit down and watch this with my teenage daughter. And he oh, had like God. exactly the same idea, like 10 minutes. And he's like, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? But the great thing was is that his teenage daughter says, like turned to him and went, okay, this is completely messed up, but we have to finish it. Right. Let's so see she what happens. was like, she was mature enough to understand that like, yes. this was completely inappropriate. Yeah, it is. And it's interesting because it does, it highlights the perceived maturity and sexual maturity of adolescent girls when, I mean, lots of guys get in trouble for having sex with teenage girls and it's always the, well, she looked older, she was more mature and it's she like was flirting with me. Yeah. It's like, this is a freaking child. Yeah. Um, you know, at the end of this, Alicia Silverstone ends up in a freaking funny farm and you know, there's this whole big scene at the end, of course, but, um, it, I think it's so kind that's, of. I mean, and that's really fucked up. It is too, totally because, fucked up. Like, like it's let's really let's say, if, like, we, if we were going to take this premise seriously, that this child. I mean, what it, for me as a forensic psychologist doing an evaluation on a child that is acting in that manner, I would immediately go hypersexuality, oversexualized. What has happened to this child? Totally. We have got to figure out who is abusing her uh-huh. now. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there are some people that are so characterologically disordered that they could be budding sociopaths at age 14. That's a possibility. Right. Right. But generally, the vast majority of them are people who have been Abuse perpetrated themselves. upon. Yeah, yeah. But it, it kind of, I feel like this is this movie is the epitome of my theory that teenage girls are the most powerful people on the planet. They just don't know it, usually. Yeah. When you think of all the men that get in trouble for... Having sex with teenage girls, they're they're quite powerful beings, actually. Yes. yes, they have so much power. So my personal favorite, 1996, my best friend and I graduating high school, we went and saw this movie together, um, is Fear with Mark Wahlberg and Reese Witherspoon. And I'm watching these movies and I'm like, I had that hair. I had those eyebrows. Like, this was me. <laughs> it, it was so weird to... I think that's why they're so such so imprinted with me is because yeah. I was oh, the same yeah. age as these girls. Yeah. Um, and also, by the way, can I just say like total fan here? Yeah. Reese Witherspoon is a freaking phenomenal actress and has been since day one. If you Absolutely. go back and look at her in 
what was the Dangerous Liaisons, the teen uh-huh. version yeah. with Sarah Michelle Gellar, but it was called... Oh, um, shit. Selma Sorry. Blair, everyone's, Ryan Philippe. I know, everyone's screaming it right now. But she's the one that, I mean, she elevates. I mean, yeah. Mark Wahlberg, totally nice guy. My partner just worked with him in a movie. He's a great guy. Not the most talented actor, and he for knows sure. it. For sure, right? for sure. But she elevated that. Everybody, everybody knows. Oh, yeah. And she's, she's, oh, yeah, absolutely. She just transcends generations. Um, but it's just, it's pure 90s gold. It was so good. I mean, both of these movies take place in Seattle, so it's like grunge. You know, the soundtrack to Fear is awesome. It has like Bush and like, just, it, it's totally like Shiloh in her late high school, early college years. Um, so, I mean, nobody was simultaneously as hot and creepy as Mark Wahlberg yeah. is in this film. Um, it, it's funny. There's, there's been a, so I threw up a teaser on our social media about like these films and what we were talking about. And if you're a teenage girl that watched this movie the roller coaster scene is just burned into your brain, and that's all I'm going to say. Right. That was probably like one of the hottest things we'd ever seen, next to you know Mark Marky Mark's Good Vibrations videos. <laughs> but you know, in, in all seriousness, one of the things I think is fascinating about that particular scene, and you know, and I don't give the writer credit for this at all because mm-hmm. I doubt they understood this psychological underpinning, is the idea that a sociopath is so impaired in their ability to feel stimulation yeah. because of, you know, uh, brain structure and amygdala structure that going, engaging in the sex act while on a roller coaster was actually necessary for him to actually, to feel anything. Right. Right. And what right. he wants to do is bring somebody along with him sure. on that. I sure. mean, he certainly has a motive for it, but it's also for him to feel something. Right. He's somebody that has an impaired ability to do that. Yeah. So, so this is a classic story of like good girl falls for the bad guy and her, her naughty sort of best friend is Alyssa Milano. And that's how she sort of, you know, ends up with this bad boy who, you know, turns out to be really sweet and not what she thought thought he was going to be and tells her all the right things immediately and and starts manipulating her family immediately that's really the, the sort of the creepiness to this and then well yeah because that destroys your sense of safety you want the parents to be the ones that actually have enough smarts yeah to protect their child right right, right. and then there's just one big outburst of violence where he thinks her guy friend, he sees them talking and sort of like, you know, a sweet touch on the shoulder or hug or something. And he just like pummels this guy and she does the right thing. She absolutely says, never talk to me again, cuts off all ties with him, um, tells her family, like, I don't want to take his calls, all of that. And that's really when the obsession begins because he's been rejected. Can't have her. Thank you, Cruel Intentions. Cruel Intentions. Thank you, Justin. <laughs> Thank you, Justin. Um, so he, the stalking behaviors are, are really prevalent. I mean, the the surveillance. He's following at school. He break. He gets into the school, leaves a note in her locker, begging forgiveness. Um, sends her flowers and takes you know, pictures that they took together and sending them to her house. And then shows up unexpectedly and begs forgiveness. And she, you know, promises he'll change. And then she takes him back, of course. And and then some of the sociopaths. Oh, so, by the way, if yeah. you take away nothing from this episode, yeah. 
If you have been engaged in a violently coercive relationship with someone that has been that invasive, they are not going to change. Like there you go. They're just not. Right. Like that's actually the truth of what we're talking about. Yes. Yes. So they get back together, but he now starts really a lot of the sociopathic stuff where he's um, turning her against her father. He fakes an assault by the dad. Um, and gets more and more obsessed. The uh, the the phrase that pops into people's minds if they know this movie well is Nicole forever because he <laughs> carved that into his chest and then did like a homemade tattoo, and it's literally like Nicole the number four E V A. Oh wow! <laughs> but it's it, this movie is good. It's way better than the crush. Say hello to your mother. I love that's I have to love him for sending himself up for that. Totally, totally. But there's just a ton of great movies. These are my personal favorites and were sort of fun to go back and watch again and just definitely um Tales of Caution. Okay, so can I give two more from the not even from the nineties, but sort of of that area. The first one that comes up that I love and I don't want to love it as much as I do. Uh Um but because it's actually there are some things that are really bad about it, except that Billy Campbell is such a phenomenal actor. The movie Enough with Jennifer Lopez, yeah. where she's like sort of a lower SES woman that marries this unbelievably hot, and he, that's a handsome guy right there. Charming, super successful, and it all starts going bad, and then he sets her up and sends her to prison. And of course, it's this is when it turns into a lifetime movie right. of where she's actually educated by another female inmate. Like he's going to kill you when you get out. He will go after you. And did she go to prison? I don't know. I may be Was that double jeopardy. <laughs> no, I may be confusing. There was one with Crystal Bernard. That that was on Lifetime, where she went to prison and was taught to no, defend herself. Th- she tries to run away, and that fails, and then it's. Um, so she ends up know. like she, she ends learns up to, like the only way to deal with it is to kill right. Him. So she trains. She becomes like a great fighter. But I mean, the way he plays, you know, just not respecting boundaries and like yeah. and that you know really so plays smugly. sort of the antisocial that what we call it the narcopath, which is not an official term, but a combination of narcissistic and sociopath is really interesting. And then there's another one from more from your time period that we're talking about with Julia Roberts, oh which God. is, what is that? Sleeping with Sleep, the enemy. Sleeping with the enemy. Yeah. And that is really, uh, you know, we're someone that is, you know, engaged in coercive control. Every little mistake, he isolates her from her family. You know, and when she finally makes her escape, he yeah. finds a way to track her down. How creepy is this? I had a movie poster of that in my room in junior high. But because I loved it, and I loved, you know, Julia Roberts was everything back then, but that's really weird. <laughs> All right. I think that's enough. That's a We're lot. melting. We Our brains so are melting, melting right now. That was fun, though. That yeah, was like a, a really one. cool episode. Yeah. Um, so, like we said, we do have, um, we're going to release our... True Crime Podcast Festival live show about Mary Kay Letourneau that we have re-recorded with Getting Off. Um, So what we're likely going to do is part one will be released through the Getting Off show. 
we'll let you know about that and when that comes out. And then part two will be released with us at LA Not So Confidential. Yeah. So um, look forward to that after this one. Um, one of the things we're actually completely excited about our collaboration with uh, Nick and Jessa. So one of the things I want to say about if there are cases that you would really like to know about a collaboration between the law the, you know, the defense attorney perspective versus the forensic site perspective, send us your ideas and your questions. Sure. We, we love working with them. And I think we're looking forward to a long collaborative relationship. I'm very mm-hmm. excited about that. And if we can do another live show in the future, we need, I'm a jackass. I forgot to pick the winner of the t-shirt for, um, podcast reviews. So we'll do that and announce it on social media. Oh, cool. Okay. And our winners that we got from the podcast festival, Chris Brewer and Alice, Allison, Oh, I'm blanking. I'm so sorry. I'm melting. Um, Your your T-shirt's in the mail, I promise you. (laughs) All right. Till next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, folks. Bye-bye.